0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this lecture, which is arranged by the Historical Group and the Air Power Group, and we're very glad to have the Air Power Group with us this evening. This evening, we are a couple of weeks from the 50th anniversary of the shooting down of the U-2 flown by Gary Powers over Russia, and we're very lucky to have Chris Pocock, to tell us about that incident and a bit more about the aeroplane itself and how it was used. The CIA historian has described Chris as today's foremost authority on the U-2 and its development. Chris is a full-time writer specialising in defence aerospace and air logistics. He's defence editor of Aviation International News and the European editor of Cargo Facts. His interest in the U 2 started in the early 1970s, and he wrote his first book on the aircraft in 1989 Dragon Lady, a history of the U 2 spy plane. And uh, a number of Chris's books are going to be available uh, for purchase after the lecture outside in the foyer. Um, he's continued to follow the remarkable aeroplane. He's obtained um, cameras for display at the Imperial War Museum. And his latest book, um, 50 Years of the U2, was published five years ago. Um, it's a great pleasure to invite Chris to tell us about Mayday 1960 and the U2. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you, Kit, and um, thank you for inviting me. Um, This um, is actually quite an extraordinary day for aviation, as many of you may know, uh, with all um, commercial airplanes grounded. I'm going to tell you about a day 50 years ago when the same thing happened over the Soviet Union, and they grounded all uh, their aircraft um, while they concentrated on trying to shoot down uh, Gary Powers. Um... It's going to take um, quite a while, I've got quite a lot of slides to get through, Um, so um, we'll start with a bit of um, uh, background to the uh, U2 development and then I'll start off in June 59 uh, when um, things really began to happen uh, leading up to May Day. If we've got time at the end, um, Kit has asked me if I can um, take the story forward and just briefly explain why the U-2 is very much uh, still in operation today. Um, When I was putting this together, um, that was the title, but you know, um, I thought we could almost have an alternative title for this, which may have a little more present-day resonance. And, And I'll come back to the dodgy dossier in a minute. The WMD is the Soviet Union's first um, intercontinental ballistic missile. So, um, the story of the U-2 starts with, um, Kelly Johnson and this design, um, in 1954, uh, which, um, was adopted, um, for a very fast development, um, as follows. Um, there's the aeroplane as it eventually, um, uh, emerged, uh, and that's sitting on the, um, the lake, uh, the Watertown Strip, today known as Groom Lake, but it was uh, built originally for the U-2 uh, test flying as uh, the most uh, secret site they could find in the U.S. Um, and the U-2 uh, was pretty important, not just as the technology of the airplane, but the way it was to be managed, um, and and it was a... A CIA-sponsored vehicle. Uh, it was not to be a US Air Force-controlled uh, vehicle, but um, the CIA was, of course, into human and spies. It wasn't into technology and airplanes, so the US Air Force was going to be a, a, a big contributor. So it essentially was a joint venture. Um, a lot of contractor support, um, uh, which was a key to the venture, because that ensured that these airplanes were more reliable and really um quality controlled to death in the field because they had to uh perform uh, 100% when they were over denied territory and denied territory was the soviet union of course because um uh, very little known uh, about um uh, military uh developments in in the soviet union uh, a closed society and um uh the U-2 was an attempt to prize apart uh, the Iron Curtain that had descended. Um, And the pilots uh, were to be um, out of the U.S. Air Force uh, but um, uh, actually civilians and um, employed by the CIA. And the photo interpretation system was also a completely new setup for this operation. An entirely new management system um, and the British were involved with this uh, from the word go because the Americans greatly valued uh, the photo interpretation um, ability of, of, um, th- that was resident in the UK. And so the project was launched when given the uh, cryptonym, codename, uh, Aquatone, and you can see the very amazingly compressed time scale uh, there for the... Um, Uh, development uh, uh, and um, early uh, test flights and then into production. Um, And um, the first flights of the Soviet Union um, took place uh, in the summer of 1956 and uh, that's roughly where they went. Um, And you can see they were flown out of Wiesbaden in Germany and um, they covered European Russia And um, there was a harvest, a harvest of uh, photo intelligence uh, out of these uh, flights uh, because these were the targets. The most important achievement of this first series of flights was that the uh, bomber, the so-called bomber gap was disproved, a fear that the Soviet Union uh, was ahead of the US in the uh, development of long-range bombers that could carry a nuclear weapon to the U.S. But there was no sign of um, such a large development of, uh, of bombers. So uh, those first flights were very successful. But uh, President Eisenhower here on the right um, had given permission uh, for these flights on the basis that the U-2 would not only be invulnerable to Soviet interception because it flew so high, Um, but also that it would be undetectable. Um, It would not be picked up by Soviet radars because they just weren't good enough to pick up an airplane at 70,000 feet. Sadly, that proved not to be the case and a Soviet protest note arrived uh, halfway through the intended first series of flights, causing Eisenhower to immediately uh, stop them and this would be the recurring theme of the next uh, 4 years uh, because uh, eisenhower was a very cautious president um he was a military man of course um and he well understood the need for um superior intelligence and indeed through his many policies of um sponsoring development of uh, different uh techniques and uh vehicles he he followed through on that, but at the same time he was very, very cautious uh, with regard to the Soviet Union. Um, the man on the left, Richard Bissell, was put in charge of the project at the CIA. He was a, uh, a, a Yale graduate. He um, had masterminded the introduction of the Marshall Plan in Europe, so a very clever man. Uh, not a technical man, but he mastered things very quickly, and he became the project director for Uh, the Aquatone project in the CIA. Um, So, what to do? The flights were grounded. Um, The answer was to try and make the U-2 invisible, as almost as an afterthought. And so, the next year was spent trying to make this aeroplane stealthy. Uh, It was uh, the world's world's first operational stealth aeroplane, 1957. The trouble is it didn't work very well. Um, the U-2 had to defeat early warning radars, uh, mainly. That was the biggest, uh, problem. Um, but it also, of course, had to defeat any, um, tracking radars, height finders, a whole series of radars. And the Soviets had these at a whole series of frequencies. And their best early warning radar was a VHF frequency. So, um, this was quite a challenge, a challenge that stealth designers faced later through the development of stealth into what we know today. Um, but it was thought to be working to some extent, and so um these airplanes were deployed in 1957. Meanwhile, there was a cover story um to hide the true purpose of the U-2. Um, it was described as a weather reconnaissance aircraft. The um, uh, first detachment that had deployed to Europe, uh, Detachment A, was known for public consumption as the Weather Reconnaissance Squadron Provisional No. 1. And um, it was also given a um, technical, technical spec was released that was um, way below the, um, the max um, altitude of the u2a was um 70 to 75000 feet and the max range about 4000 nautical miles um informed observers saw through this cover story pretty quickly as you can see including um the denizens of flight um and um, and even the the national newspapers um and never mind the cia went ahead with the deployments um and the second detachment was Detachment B. And that was set up in in Turkey uh, in late 1956. So with the Rainbow aircraft, the semi-stealthy aircraft, um, President Eisenhower was persuaded to approve a second series of flights uh, in 1957. These occurred in August and September. Um, and those are the targets for those sites. Uh, it was clear f- from signals intelligence that a ICBM site, or new, a new missile site was being developed um, uh, in the southern USSR near the Aral Sea, and um, so that was a key target for these flights, and um, a U-2 mission in this series found them, found it to and um but the, the what it found was that the um the missile site was actually on a spur off of the railroad so they went back uh, about a month later and uh, made sure that they were directly overhead those flights ended um there was another one in the following march the soviets protested it they had intermittently picked up the flights in 57 the overflights not enough to document a protest uh but this time Uh, They did, and that was the protest note they sent in. And here was Eisenhower's response. And uh, it's worth reading this because this gives you an indication of his state of mind. So the project was grounded again. That brings us to the start of this May Day story, um, which really begins in June of 1959, when there had been no overflights for 15 months. However, in that time, um, the Sputnik had been launched and the race to space had started. And the significance of this um, was twofold. Number one, the Soviets being first into space with Sputnik was a um, a psychological blow, if you like, to, to U.S. technological um, prowess. But more importantly, it was potentially a serious military development, because the vehicle that could launch Sputnik could clearly launch uh, could, could clearly also be an ICBM. Those are the dates of the first two Sputnik launches. Um, the Soviets were very careful not to issue too much information. Um, they didn't specify the launcher. they didn't specify the site. But here's the calculation. Um, that, um, uh, th- that, um, makes the vehicle that launches the Sputnik also the vehicle that can deliver a nuclear warhead. Um, but the actual launch wasn't, uh, a complete surprise. First of all, because of that U2 mission I described, which had gone over the site a couple of months earlier, and that is, uh the overhead imagery from the u2 of the uh first launch pad at tsuratam um and uh, also because of uh, other indications um mainly sigin um what else in june 59 the uh launch of the sputnik and this uh clear development of a uh, a launch vehicle, a big launch vehicle um, sparked a new controversy um, over whether the Soviet union was um, uh, leading the race to develop and deploy intercontinental ballistic missiles and here is a here's the dodgy dossier it it's the national intelligence estimate of october nineteen fifty seven uh, sorry december fifty seven um, which based on the flimsiest of evidence, um, concluded as follows, uh, conceding that um, a number of test flights would be needed, but there was hardly any evidence of those test flights. Um, There was absolutely no idea of the configuration of this uh, booster. Um, But nevertheless, um, these were the conclusions which became the official settled view of the US intelligence community for a while uh, in the late 50s. Um, Another development of interest by June of 1959 was the Jacksons. Well, no, the Jacksons, it sounds like a soap opera, but it's not actually. It was the CIA's code name or cryptonym uh, for the participation of a British operational group. Um, The um, British were invited into the program uh, on the operational side in late 1957 and um, according to Richard Bissell in his memoirs this was done because Eisenhower was not approving flights and he, Bissell, thought that if the British could be brought in uh, they could use an alternative chain of approval and that our Prime Minister, uh, Macmillan, would be more pliable and more, um, and more likely to, um, approve overflights of the Soviet Union. There's not much evidence in the record to suggest that. And practically speaking, since the British participation was not a standalone one, but, uh, as it were, uh, bolted on to the existing U.S., uh, U-2, unit in Turkey. It was not a truly independent capability, um, but um, we still don't quite know uh, the full story here because the British uh, files have, of course, never been declassified. Uh, the last time I checked, the um, MOD in the Cabinet Office told me that in response to my Freedom of Information requests, uh, they'd actually lost the files. If the CIA was going to get approval for any more U-2 flights, it was quite clear to their uh, leaders uh, in the Aquatome project, to Bissell, and to his Air Force uh, assistance that it ha- would have to be done in the most covert way possible. And so um, they developed a new concept of covert deployment, which um, actually uh, people could learn lessons from today. Um, the concept was that uh, to try and identify from peripheral signals intelligence uh, the points in around the Soviet periphery where their early warning radars were weakest and go in there. Um, that would mean using staging bases. You couldn't Fly the thing out of Turkey if the uh, radar gap was way to the east, which it was. So uh, that meant uh, developing a project, uh, a system for moving the plane and its support to a staging base um, with a minimum uh, footprint, doing it very quickly. Um, the first uh, such, that they began to practice this deployment uh, concept in in the autumn of 1958 with a deployment to bodo in norway um, the reason for going to bodo was that um, there was in indications that uh, uh there were missile developments in the northern part of the soviet union and the plan was to try and get a flight out of bodo that would go round that uh, would, would would cover some targets in the northern ussr um this was a bit dodgy politically, because they didn't tell the Norwegians what they were up to. Um, they told the intelligence officers, uh, chief of the Norwegian um, military, but, um, uh, or they let him guess. But anyway, um, Cloud covers those regions um, for a very large part of the year, and it turned out that there was not a clear day to try and do that mission. Uh, and so, in November 58, they packed up and, and went back, uh, because also in the northern USSR, uh, the sun. If, if they had a sunny day in December, the sun angle was just too low to provide useful photography. And the fast move concept was um, refined in uh, two deployments uh, t- to the UK. In fact, uh, from Turkey uh, in. December 58 and May 59 that were given a oh so British, um, code name, as you can see, uh, and the, the, uh, the plane was deployed to, uh, RAF Watton, um, with the C-130, which was the, uh, support aeroplane, and, uh, quickly a mission set up and, and the, the, actual practice mission was a mission around the UK, um, a long, long mission, um, uh, to, to uh, mimic what the the length of a soviet overflight about 9 hours uh, this is the um one of the groups uh, that deployed there um the c130 air crew in their uh, uh baggies um but you've got um, a couple of the, uh, the the detachment commander and an american navigator uh and a, a ops officer uh and that's the british commander um seconded to Robbie robinson who uh commanded the British group in Turkey, and that was his, the doctor, um, because the British group not only was pilots, they did train uh, a mission planner and a navigator, um, and a doctor, a medic. Constraints that the people planning these missions uh, faced, if there were to be any more Soviet overflights, were very considerable. Um, first of all, there were the political permissions um could you get the staging um permissions from these different countries? Um second was the need to avoid the detection as previously described. Um third it was a quite a task to um the U-2 had a had a capability for maximum range and it had a capability for maximum altitude, but they weren't the same. You had to fly the mission in a different profile um depending on what you wanted. So there was a lot of um uh, adjustment and, and trading off to do in that area. There were more trade-offs to uh, accomplish in, in the film coverage. Uh, the top picture there is the B camera, uh, the camera that was specially designed for the U2, a fantastic piece of machinery. Um, it um, uh, was a compromise between uh, a panoramic camera that would give you a very large swathe of coverage and a um, framing camera that would give you good detail. And it did that by having a, a stop, a framing but stop and shoot system. That assembly rotated to one of seven different positions. It's in the vertical down position there. And then it would rotate out, uh, one, two, three, and, and the other side as well. Um, so, just stopping, shooting, stopping, shooting, if you wanted it to go all the way out to the horizon. If you did that, um, you could actually cover a swathe 640 nautical miles um, wide. If, But if you wanted, the best resolution came from the one, the, the vertical and the two uh, left and right positions. If you did that, you only got 21 nautical miles of a swathe. Um, there were 6,000 feet of film in these huge magazines, uh, film magazines there, and there's two of them because they contra So the, um, the films came across the, uh, iris of the camera like that, um, uh, to produce two nine by nine inch, uh, negatives, big negatives, nine by nine inch. Um, that was another issue. Um, if you, they found out in one of the early test flights, when they ran the U-2 with a camera across an a-, a target airfield in the US, that they got fantastic um, coverage of the hangars and the, the revetments on the other side of the airfield. But they wanted to know whether it was a concrete runway or a tarmac runway or what. And they didn't get the runway because it was that thin line in the middle between the two, um, the two strips of film. So there's another constraint. Um, Maps and targets, this was the Soviet Union. The, the maps were Second World War. It was, they were based on Second World War German photography. Um, there, was, there was nothing else. Um, the um, targets, where did the targets come from? Um, well, they first came from German refugees, the Germans that had been captured, the, the, the technical um, teams that the Soviets had um, taken into the Soviet Union, because of their expertise in, in rockets and missile development, um, in the, and, and kept into the, um, early 50s. Uh, they were eventually released and they were debriefed by Western intelligence. So they provided some indications of where the development activity might take place. Um, there were a few spies. There really weren't many, though. Um, hardly any. Um, and um, of course there were the air attachés who the western air attachés who could um travel around parts of the soviet union although their movements were restricted and above all there was signals intelligence um which um uh, could provide in the absence of anything else um valuable information um the constraints, uh, what about the constraints in the, for the pilot? Um, a very basic aeroplane. Um, it had a, there's the cockpit of the early U2. Um, the nav system, you'd hardly call it a navigation system, actually. There was, um, uh, a drift site, which is there. The pilot had a, a, um a, a, a drift site path which showed, um, uh, by magnification, the ground beneath him. So um, he could look at his maps and compare it with the, the ground as it unfolded beneath him, of course, provided there was no cloud. Um, there was ADF, and um, that was fine, of course, as long as you knew the frequencies of the Soviet radio stations. Uh, there was um, sextant, there was uh, Celestial, and that was fine as long as your mission planner had done his uh, the accurate um, uh, pre-flight computations. Um So that was it and then of course the pilot physiology. This plane designed to fly at uh, 70,000 feet so the pilot needed protection. He needed to wear a pressure suit, a very uncomfortable garment um, which would inflate if uh, cabin pressure was lost and moreover after a nine-hour flight over hostile territory if all went well he had to land the plane and as I'm sure this audience is familiar, that wasn't easy because uh, the U-2, uh, Kelly Johnson had designed it for rigorous weight saving, and so it had a bicycle undercarriage. Uh, and um, also, I was reminded earlier this evening, um, at altitude, the U-2 um, has uh, suffered from the... Um, coffin-corner phenomenon f- that all high-altitude flyers can encounter and that is that the fastest it could go was close to the slowest it could go and so at 70,000 feet the stall buffet was 92 knots indicated and the Mark buffet was 100 knots indicated. Were there any alternatives? Um, no. Um, the Successor to the U2 was on the drawing boards. Uh, the CIA had been pushing forward with a, a program named Gusto, um, which, uh, through a series of design studies, eventually led to uh, the prosaically named Oxcart program, uh, which was the SR, which became the SR-71 Blackbird, the Mark III, 85,000 feet vehicle. But uh, in 1959, that was still on the drawing boards. The Oxcart contracts were let later in 1959. The odd second alternative was the Corona, the first uh, satellite, the first photo intelligence, photo reconnaissance satellite, and that was um, in the hardware stage and had made, uh, the first launches had been attempted in in 1959, uh, in in earlier 59, but they'd failed. They'd all failed um, with the booster um, or um, the second stage or whatever, a lot of technical problems. And it was a film return system, so there was a lot of things to go right from the booster all through the cycle uh, all the way to the recovery of the film, ejected from the um, uh, the capsule in space to be recovered by a sea, uh, an aeroplane trying to snag it in midair. A lot to go wrong, and a lot did go wrong. There was a discussion in the White House on the 8th of July um, between, uh, with these people present and um, the, D- the Director of Central Intelligence, the DCI there, and Bissell. I'm going to read you the um, summary of that discussion um, by General Goodpaster, um, who, what a treasure he was. We would know so much less about the politics of all this if, if Good pastor had not faithfully recorded the discussions in the White House, albeit in very careful language um, to preserve secrecy as you'll understand as you hear me read his description of this discussion. The President said he had asked for the meeting because he wanted to hear Secretary of State Herter's views about a proposal for a reconnaissance flight. He expressed his own concern over the possibility of getting involved in something costly and harmful. Mr. Herter said that the intelligence objective, in his view, outweighs the danger of getting trapped. He noted that a single operation was being proposed. He recognized that there is always the chance of loss of a plane, but our experience has been very good. He had been much interested in the idea of a flight straight through, and I'll come back to that later, but understood that this was not practicable. Mr. Dulles confirmed this, commenting that the proposed flight will enter through one country and leave through another. It was agreed that in case of protest, we would defend ourselves with an absolute disavowal and denial on the matter. The president then said that Khrushchev seems almost to be looking for excuses to be belligerent, the Soviet pres- uh, Premier Khrushchev by doing nothing he can put us in a terrible hole in Berlin Uh, holding the cards he does he Khrushchev could very readily say that such an event as this marks the end of serious negotiations there remains in the president's mind the question whether we are getting to the point where we must decide if we are trying to prepare to fight a war or to prevent one after all the discussion The president indicated that in view of the unanimous recommendation of the officials having the operational responsibility, he would assent to the operation being conducted. And so, Operation Touchdown was flown the next day. And by the way, Eisenhower always looked at the plans. I mean, they brought in the flight plans. They brought in uh, major justifications uh, including the routes every time. And this flight, uh, would start, uh, started in, in Pakistan. Because this was the area where the Soviet air defenses were, um, not yet. The early Warners were old, uh, P-10, P-12, Nifris, uh, and had been upgraded. And it would fly to Turatam. That's the, um, sorry, this isn't as clear as it should be. There's the Aral Sea. There's Moscow. Uh, there's Turkey where they were based, so they had to deploy and to Pakistan. Uh, then the flight after Turutam, heading north um, to a very rich uh, target set in uh, and around the Sverdlovsk area. Um, and I've got that on the next slide, I think. And then at the northernmost extremity, beyond Sverdlovsk, uh, and come back round, head south, more targets, and then eventually um, exiting to the south to a landing in Iran. So the Iranians had also been um, uh, tapped uh, for permission to allow this plane to land. Um, the uh, solid red line is the camera on. The dotted red line is, is the flight track, but with the camera off. So those were the targets, including a suspected ICBM base. And here's some of the photography, um, from the mission. Um, that is, oh, hang on, that's the, um, Verk Novinsky. That's the uranium enrichment plant at Verk Novinsky. And that is the power station that fed the uranium enrichment plant at Vatnaminsti. You can see the um, uh, chimneys of the power station there. You can also see something else in this image. Does anyone, can anyone spot anything significant in this image apart from the power station? Missiles are here. Yes. Um, this is an SA-2 surface-to-air missile site. Um, a very Obvious pattern, the hexagon pattern with the six missile revetments, um, and um, that was the good news from this flight was um, that that flight was not detected by Soviet air defences at all. The bad news was that seventeen SA-2 sites showed up on the photography. Now the SA two missile had been shown publicly for the first time in Moscow, in a Moscow parade in 1957. Um, but there hadn't been any U-2 flights in the meantime, so there was no um there wasn't much indication of the pace of development and deployment of that surface to air missile. But um not only were seventeen of the sites of these sites identified on the film from this mission, but four of them were assessed to be operational. Before long, the US would make a uh, an assessment of this missile, the US intelligence, that it was not effective above 60,000 feet, and that assessment held good through to May day 1960. This picture has never been shown publicly, before, as far as I'm aware, because I extracted it from the declassified nas- uh, film in the National Archives in the US a few months ago. Um, the significance of it is that it's from this mission in July 59. That is the site that shot down Gary Powers nine months later. So there was an air defense threat from missiles developing against the U-2 flights, and then there was also interceptors um, they couldn't reach the U-2 at 70,000 feet. The MiG-19, uh, had a ceiling of about 55,000 feet. Um, it had missiles, but their effectiveness was unknown. They were semi-active radar, ho- they were beam riders. Um, their effectiveness wasn't known. Um, a new, in, Interceptor was being developed. The Western intelligence knew very little about this, the fish part, uh, but the Soviets had claimed a world record um, the month in, in July '59, uh, zoom climbing the experimental predecessor to the uh, Su-9. So the response was to uh, re-engine the U-2, try and give it a little bit more altitude, a little extra margin of safety. Um, it had gone, um, gone into service with the Pratt & Whitney's J57, um, specially modified versions, of course. So that was a standard, uh, US Air Force engine in a lot of, a lot of different airplanes. But, um, it was replaced by the J75 that was more powerful. Same, same company, Pratt & Whitney. Um, same diameter, more or less. So it could fit in the U2 without modification. And it provided somewhat of a margin of safety um and put the altitude back up to 75000 feet then as with most airplanes uh weight growth had occurred in in the u2 um the airplane you're looking at here is the configuration in which the last few overflights of the soviet union were flown um it's um it's where it's got the um ex, uh, it's got the slipper tanks that were added to uh, try and give a bit more fuel uh, boost the range uh, the camera is in the compartment behind the pilot there you can also see there, there, and there well, there and there um, well, and there antennas for a SIGINT system uh, two systems, in fact the U2 had a uh, a small communications intelligence system and a small electronic intelligence system. The purpose of these was to try and uh, pick up emissions from the Soviet air defense system as they uh, went after the U-2. That mission having been successful, uh, the president um, was equivocal about more flights. The CIA, uh, or the U.S. intelligence community, told him that if they really wanted to um, find out the maximum possible from U-2 photography about the Soviet nuclear weapons and ICBM developments, they needed 14 missions uh, because they'd identified 12 of the highest priority targets in the central USSR and another 14 in the western USSR. 26 high priority targets, 14 missions. Well, they never got that because the president was still reluctant. But um, the British were there and the next mission was flown by... Squadron Leader Robbie Robinson on the 6th of December, 1959. Um, we don't have the full flight track for that. That is the port, it also, uh, staged out of Turkey to Pakistan, uh, and in, launched out of Pakistan. Um, the first part of the, um, route was cloudy. And the last part of the route was cloudy, so I can only tell you where the camera was turned on and useful intelligence was received. But um, uh, that was, um, of course, one of the other huge issues, the cloud. But they'd still go. They'd wait for days and days sometimes for a good weather forecast. And how did they get their weather? Well, of course, they listened in the Soviet weather forecasts. Um, they wait, but eventually they'd have to go, and, and they'd, they'd make a determination that well, the biggest, highest priority targets are here, here, and in this case here, and so they would go. That's uh, the Kapustin Yar, uh, the other missile test base. This was the intermediate range ballistic missile test base, and that was the key target for this flight. And here are the um, here's the main target list for that flight. Um, here's, uh, some imagery from it. And, uh, this is the, this is actually what you, the, the, the uh, photo interpreters would see, uh, when they first got the film. Because this is actually the negative. This is a corner of the negative. If you can, this is a nine by nine inch. So, uh, on this screen, if I was to show it all oh, you'd be down here. It's about a, a quarter of that nine by nine negative. Um, with the, uh, it's, it's from the nine left. It's in left position uh it's not the vertical position um and there's the date and that's the mission number and that's the classification uh and this is uh one part of the the Kapustin Yar uh missile test site there's a that's a um a uh, a launch pad and you can see the service road accessing it the security fence around the site P- PIs loved uh, Western PIs loved the Soviet Union because they were so security conscious. You could always tell when something important was there because they put a bloody great fence around it. And the other thing, of course, in the winter, this flight and the next one flown in winter, a lot of snow on the ground. What were the uh, what got cleared first? What what where was the snow cleared from first? The important places. So that was some useful aids to photo interpretation. Um, So, uh, that was all the good news. Uh, No detection again by Soviet air defences. They got in scot-free. And here's so many aircraft, so many um, airfields covered. Um, Kapustin Yar, there was a huge expansion going on there. Um, That was only a little portion that I showed you. And the significance for later events of Kapustin Yar was the Intermediate-Range Ballistic Missiles tested there. And it was those missiles that were to feature in the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, three years later. And uh, the U.S. Uh, Western intelligence got a lot of its knowledge from these flights and the kind of knowledge that enabled President Kennedy to face down the Soviets over Cuba. Um, There were operational problems on this flight. Um, Contrails were an absolute no-no, of course. Um, In theory, the U-2 would fly through the Contrail zone and come out the other side at about 67,000 feet. Um, If it didn't, it was a valuable pointer to fighter interceptors. And remember, just as important, a valuable pointer to detection and and the the, uh, documenting of a protest. and surprisingly, in the upper atmosphere, there were headwinds from time to time, and this flight suffered from them. And so, uh, Squadron Leader Robinson um, checked his fuel curve, and um, uh, as instructed and advised, he might have to do this. He had to cut short at the northernmost point this mission, and so two uh, key targets were were not covered. Another 20... SAM sites, and most of them assessed as being active. Um, The next mission was flown on the 5th of February 1960, and it was another British mission. Uh, This one was flown by Flight Lieutenant John MacArthur. Um, And um, like the previous one, it was going to be launched out of Pakistan, and I forgot to say that the previous one recovered into the home base for this unit, which was uh, Adana in Turkey. And John um, had a new target set, but he had those two important targets up there at Kazan and Sarova that uh, Robbie Robinson had been unable to reach because of his uh, headwinds. Um, and um, so this was his route. Um, and coming out um, across... Uh, a whole range of targets and Dnipro, uh, over here. Not known yet, actually, when they planned the mission, they knew there was something interesting here. This actually was the, the factory where the Soviet ICBM was being produced. Um, here's the summary of this mission. Um, again, they got in okay, but they were coming out, if you remember, uh, in an area where Soviet radar coverage was much better. This is the Crimea. And he was detected on exit. He, uh, managed to get the first, his, uh, imagery of the first ever view of the Blinder. And there was a big debate after this about how significant this, uh, bomber was for, uh, uh, the Soviet, um, bomber lineup. Um, Sarova, Arazamus, a, um, another nuclear facility. Um, it also managed to get, didn't go over Kapustin Yar, but, just as important to an intelligence analyst, what, what's the downrange facilities? Where do the missiles land? What, 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 how does that work? And the other important thing that uh, was going on now was in this desperate attempt to find out more about this missile, was it being deployed? Um, had they somehow missed something? Had, in, in the, in the de- development of it, um, and they did know that this missile was a huge thing, um, four strap on boosters and um they knew that it was transported to the launch site by rail they knew that from the chiratam inventory so the theory was well is it uh, it has to be transported by rail to the um, operational sites so um this flight did a railroad search and uh, they covered a load of mileage and they found absolutely nothing no sign of any deployment sites but they did find another load of SA2 sites the Next uh, flight, and as it turned out, the last successful U-2 flight took place on the 9th of April. This was an American flight. Um, President uh, Eisenhower was obviously encouraged by the British mission's successes and the uh, lack of detection, um, and uh, obviously was told that the SA-2 was not yet a threat because they didn't think it could reach... The U2 at altitude. So, um, he was now persuaded to, um, authorize some American flights. And, um, this one took place, uh, on the 9th of April, the square deal. Um, and as you can see, this one even did a search pattern. Um, this is the Sari Shagan, um, downrange impact zone for the Kapustin Yar, um, uh, IRBM launch site just to orient you there's Sverdlovsk again uh, there's Turutam which was a target towards the end of the flight there's Pakistan down there and so that one went up uh, had a, a look at um, uh, shagan went on to uh, an area they'd, went to, they'd been to in 57 and they revisited the, the nuclear test site Semi-Palatins that's where the bombs went off um, and a big missile, uh, bomber base there, and then back to search, uh, the, um, Shagan site before heading off to Turatam, and again heading south to a landing in Iran. And, um, but the Soviets had closed their early warning radar gap. They had, um, sent a new general to run the Turkestan military district for the PVO, the Soviet air defense troops, and they'd sent new, better radars. And they were installed in better positions in the high ground beyond the Hindu Kush and in in the entry points. And that flight was easy, was detected on entry, and multiple intercepts, attempts were made. I'd love to describe them to you. They're a hell of a story, but I don't have time um but um suffice it to say that um uh, bob Erickson, the pilot of this flight was awfully lucky to get away with it and um he even um went over the sa2 site at turatam which was not manned at, on the, at the time so here was the situation after that flight it's an election year the missile gap is a big political debate between the Democrats and the Republican administration of Eisenhower. Um, It wasn't... uh, It was getting um, more acute, if anything, that um, controversy. U2s from that uh, same detachment in Turkey were actually equipped with a telemetry intelligence system and sent along the Soviet border um, to try and intercept the telemetry from the launches of the SS6 out of Turitam. They knew about the launches from signals intelligence. They could hear the preparations, the countdown, but of course, and, and there was a whole bunch of assets, intelligence assets, trying to, on the periphery, the southern periphery, trying to um, determine what they could. But the launches were still fairly few and far between, and... um Remember, the missile had never been seen, and um, the U-2 was a invaluable as a peripheral intelligence tool because it flew higher than the other airplanes that were collecting telemetry intelligence, and therefore it could, uh, if in the right position, get the first stage burn telemetry, which told a lot to the rocket scientists and the rocket intel analysts uh, about this missile. There was a whole host of meetings uh, between the presidents and his advisors in the first few months of 1960, all trying to persuade him that more flights were needed. And it all boiled down eventually to three missions that were proposed. Um, The um, reassessments of the radar and the SA-2 capability Do not appear to have been spelt out to President Eisenhower. They were made. They were available to the project as the mission planners, uh, prepared these final, these next three missions. And, um, they, um, really should have been passed to the president, but I don't think they were because he had already, um, given a provisional assent to the three new proposed missions and, um, on the 25th of April, he did approve, uh, he told them they could do one of the three missions, any one of the three missions that they were asking for. But he said it has to be flown by May the 1st. The summit meeting with uh, Khrushchev, uh, was, and the, and the great powers was scheduled for Paris on the 15th of May. So, um, Eisenhower didn't want this flight, um, upsetting Khrushchev close to the summit. So he put that deadline. On and so we come to the first of May nineteen sixty and um this is um Gary Powers, um known to the world as Gary because of the publicity and all, but um known to everybody in the project and to all his family and friends as frank um and there he's in that partial pressure suit there um uh, but he's actually, of course, got the visor off because this is a posed shot. It's actually taken in 1963 after he came back. Um, here is the flight that he was supposed to fly, and um, all the missions codenamed. You can see what they codenamed this one, so that's how they what they thought about this one uh, because this was the first one that was going to go all the way across the Soviet Union. Um, it was going to start in Pakistan again, uh, just to orient you, sorry, this isn't as clear as it might be. There's Sverdlovsk again. Uh, and this is, uh, Murmansk and, uh, the Northern Soviet Union. There's Finland. This was gonna go that way, uh, cross Turitan, Sverdlovsk, and go that way. And the really important targets were up here, uh, the railroads. This was a railroad search, uh, because this was, that was keyed from SIGIN as a and, and from uh, other collateral intelligence as uh an ICBM base. Uh and there were thought to be others along here and especially one over here. Uh and these are railroads, the yellow very faint line of the yellow railroads. So those are the really important targets. The other two missions that were on the stocks, they were going to try and reach those targets from Thule Greenland. That was another possibility come in that way. Uh do the mission this way and recover into Bodo, Norway. Um, but um, they knew that the radars were good there, so that one was discounted. Landing at Bodo. They told the Norwegians that um, to expect a U-2, it would be a SIGINT flight uh, that had um, gone along the borders. And the Norwegians, on that basis, the Norwegians gave permission for the uh, flight to land at Bodo, just inside the Arctic Circle. Um, It's quite interesting to consider the operational um, toings and froings for this mission. Um, On Wednesday the 27th, the group that was uh, uh, going to go from Bodo left Turkey on a C-130 for Peshawar. They refueled in Bahrain. Uh, On board was the uh, fast-move mission kit. The pilot, Frank Powers, his backup pilot, about 20 crew. The day before, a C-124, a bigger transport, had left to pre-position the fuel in Pakistan. This aircraft had a special fuel that wasn't widely available. Um, The same morning, when 27th of April, the C-130 left in another c130 left uh turkey for rhein frankfurt with the recovery crew um they would head to norway but not until it was clear that 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 mission was going and when it was going so they held in frankfurt the support crew uh and the mission pilots arrived in peshawar they unpacked the quick move stuff put it in the hangar that they had on the far side of the airfield um in the cover under cover of darkness the mission aeroplane was flown from Turkey to, um, uh, Pakistan, uh, by another U.S. pilot. The weather wasn't good enough. The flight was postponed. And there was a new, a change in procedure this time compared with the previous three missions out of Pakistan. Um, the detachment commander, Colonel Shelton, um, and the boss his boss in New in, in uh, Washington, Colonel Burke, decided that instead of leaving the aircraft in the hangar, they would fly it back to um Turkey and bring it again the following night. I'm not clear why they did this, um because it was quite safe and secure in the hangar. The hangar was guarded, the Pakistanis were um knew it was a remote hangar and the the, the Pakistan the two or three of them that were in the know made sure that no one came near. But anyway, that's what happened. The plane was flown black. Um, the same thing happened the following night. The plane was flown in, uh, but the weather wasn't good enough. Um, so the plane was flown back again to Turkey. Um, all the time the support crew were there, Powers was there, and, um, Existing incidentally on rations, they weren't even—they weren't allowed to go anywhere. They—they they existed on rations in that hangar. Um, late afternoon of Friday, message received. There's going to be no flight on Saturday. The weather was was still bad across the key targets. It was clearing, but it wasn't good enough yet for a mission. But this—this this was Saturday, the thirtieth of April. But they saw a clearance coming. So on Saturday night, uh, the article. The U-2 was ferried again from Inchelik to um, Peshawar, and this time the mission was on, and they were going for the Grand Slam, the mission all the way across the Soviet Union. So Powers and his backup pilot uh were woken. Two hours pre-breathing of the um oxygen required for this flight. You go into the pressure suit, and then you pre-breathe oxygen to purge the nitrogen from your blood. And... um so the backup pilot also pre-breathed. Uh, this was too important to have a last-minute problem with the primary pilot. So they both pre-breathed. Um, Bob Erickson, who had flown the airplane in, uh, was the mobile. He helped strap them in the cockpit and, and do other things. Um, 3 AM, while they're doing that, the C-130 for the recovery crew departs from rhein goes to Bodo, uh, picks up um, Stan Beerly, who had a senior commander, in uh, Norway, he's flown from Washington. Off they go to Bodo. Um, the ground crew and the pilot move out to the airplane in Turkey. Um, they mistakenly put Bob... Uh, the pilot had a seat pack, of course, with his survival gear and all sorts of goodies in it. The ground crew mistakenly put Bob Erickson's seat pack into the article instead of um uh, powers. Um He goes out to the plane, strapped in. The plane is towed. The hangar door's open. The plane's towed out to the runway uh, to save fuel and because of a tight turn out of the hangar. It started up on the runway. It's 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 about an hour after dawn now and they wait for the final permission. Um, it's That permission was delayed. It, it, there was a communication system unique to the CIA but it, it was HF and in the morning just after dawn, HF propagation doesn't work too well and so um, there were some problems and, um, there was a delay in getting the permission. Powers wrote in his book subsequently that they were waiting permission from President Eisenhower. That's not true. Uh, they were, the, 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 the final permission came from the Director of Central Intelligence, because he already had the President's approval, remember, to fly one flight, um, up to the, um, 1st of May. So, um, anyway, eventually, Uh, The um, GO code was received by the communications specialists, and off he went. And um, the mission was going to be a total of 3,300 nautical miles within the range capability of the plane as long as he he leveled off. Um, It was a compromise between those two maximum range and maximum altitude profiles. So take the um, cruise climb, uh, but level off, throttle back at 70,000 for max range. And uh, that would give a nine-hour mission, and in theory it'd arrive over Bodo uh, with 100 gallons remaining, enough for the letdown. Um, talked about the weather. And what do you know, just like the previous flight, detecting on entry, and uh, the Soviets went into high gear. They launched Su-9, and MiG-19 interceptors. Um, again, I'd love to tell you those stories, but I haven't got time. There were three SA-2 sites at Sverdlovsk that uh, took part in the action. Um, the um, SU-9 was first up, by the way. I, sh- I, sh- I must tell you this. Um, the SU-9s are still entering service. Um, there were two, actually at Sverdlovsk, um, they were being ferried from the factory at Novosibirsk to their operational base. Brand new airplanes. So the pilots were there, and the airplanes were there, but they didn't have any missiles, and the pilots didn't have pressure suits. Uh, but the airplane could reach 65,000. So there was a frantic scramble, and the, one of the pilots was found, and told to get in that airplane, and take off, and ram the U-2. And um, He got up there, um, but he didn't see it. Or did he? What, what would you tell the ground controllers? Um, anyway, that's, uh, that's the story of Mentukov. Uh, in later life, uh, Mentukov wrote a memoir where, um, he said that actually he got close enough to upset the U2, um, Uh, And his slipstream upset it, and that's why it, um, uh, came out, uh, tipped out of the sky. But that's, that's nonsense. Um, MiG-19s, uh, were also, there was a special unit at Perm, which, which was, had the best pilots and was intercept, trying to intercept the pre, uh, the U-2s. So those guys were told to go down to Sverdlovsk, refuel and wait. When the SU-9 failed, they were sent up, um, and a complicated story here two of them um but they screwed up their iff codes their, their um, squawk um and um uh that proved unfortunately fatal for one of those two soviet pilots three sa2 sites and Fowers uh flew over the first one then i uh, kozolinko kozolinkoi and uh, came within its range. Major Voronyov was the uh, battery commander there, and um, he, uh, his crew acquired the aircraft with the uh, Fansong radar, and uh, they were supposed to launch uh, three, the Salvo Fire, six missiles, Salvo Fire three, and then another target, three. Um, only one went off, um, but one was enough, because that was the missile that Shot down Gary Powers, and um, what happened was um, the it had a proximity fuse, and unlike the intelligence estimates, it was good that missile for seventy thousand feet and it approached the u two from the rear. the proximity fuse fired at about sixty five thousand feet um, and in that high uh, thin air the um fragmentation warhead uh, went into the plane from the rear that protected powers he saw a flash as the missile exploded but um, he didn't and, and the plane lurched forward uh, but he didn't see the missile and he didn't see it coming he didn't see it in his drift sight because he would, had just made a turn and he was um, a, and and he was checking his fuel and uh, his maps and everything so um uh, he survived the attack but unfortunately, the plane didn't. The, um, it seems that the, uh, horizontal stabilizers, uh, were disabled and, um, they came off and that was the end. Um, the airplane tipped over the wing, uh, and exceeded the mark buffet pretty quickly. The wings fell off, uh, and he's flying in a, he's descending in a spiral inside the cockpit. He, he couldn't eject, um, and uh he eventually figured it out. amazing that he kept his head that well there's another way to get out, just bail out over the side, and that's what he managed to do um meanwhile um the major Voroniev didn't know he would shot the u two down um this was all pretty new stuff you know s a missiles and so on um he thought he knew about chaff, he thought the u two was pushing out chaff he saw uh his people saw uh the a blooming target now instead of a single target but he thought it was chaff he thought the u2 was um had some radar some electronic warfare well it did it had a little electronic warfare um transmitter in in the tail uh, but that was only good against air to air radars um and it may indeed have worked against that su9 interception because um Mentukoff never never saw the target in his radar um, but um, uh, Boronyev, uh did not report a kill for half an hour. And in the meantime, the uh, Soviet air defenses decided they would um, uh, fire SA-2 missiles from two other sites in the Sverdlovsk area. It's still not clear how many they fired. It, it was between five and eight. Um, but... Um, it certainly wasn't the 14 that came out later in a number of sources and, and uh, written accounts. Um, but the Soviet air defense system was learning about this and they weren't coordinating between aeroplanes, the, the missile troops and the interceptor troops. And what was clear was that one of those missile batteries uh, locked onto those two MiG-19s that had uh, taken off Uh, to try and intercept uh, the U-2, and remember, there was an IFF problem, complicated story, can't explain it in the time available, but basically, um, they tracked this lower target at 30,000 feet, unknown target, 30,000 feet. He's moving here, he's moving there, he's descending, he's climbing, and um, they shot down one of their own guys. Of course, there were tremendous repercussions, this... um, the, um, uh, Powers was captured and interrogated. Um, Khrushchev announced the shoot down cleverly omitting to tell the world that he had the pilot. The U.S. issued a cover story that, um, a, the weather plane had taken off from Turkey and the pilot had reported oxygen difficulties in the, uh, in the Lake Van area along the border with the Soviet, Soviet border with Turkey. And that was the last heard of him. Uh, and then, uh, Khrushchev announced, aha, we've got the pilot. And so that blew the cover story. Khrushchev's son said in his memoirs that his father, um, didn't expect President Eisenhower to own up. And in fact, he was, President Eisenhower now did own up. Uh, Christoph expected Eisenhower to say, oh, well, these were my subordinates. They exceeded my authority. When Eisenhower owned up, he, <laughs> he was really annoyed, and that almost made things worse. Um, the British said, uh, gave Eisenhower some advice, which he put into his uh, memoir later. He said, first of all, don't get caught, and if you're caught, don't admit it. Um, but anyway, um, that was the ruination of the summit meeting the U2 wreckage was put on display, uh, and a big political crisis, and the uh, deepening, a serious deepening of the Cold War. Conspiracy theories. Oh, there were, a bomb was put on board the airplane. Um, all sorts of conspiracy theories. The obviously a reassessment of the surface-to-air missile threat, which led directly to. A complete change of tactics for the strategic nuclear deterrent in in this country and in the U.S. to go low level. The missile gap. Well, the U-2 wasn't going to solve it, and it couldn't in a thousand years, really. Well, it could have done with about 60 overflights, but, of course, you're trying to prove a negative. And um, there weren't any of those big missiles deployed uh, in 1959. Um that was indeed, that first estimate was indeed a dodgy dossier. By 1960, the CIA had worked this out, not from the U-2 flights, but from collateral intelligence. But um, the Air Force was having none of it, and the Hawks were having none of it. They insisted that this missile had to have been deployed. And um, uh, so they also pressed for the last flights. And that's. Uh, but they were right. They were wrong. The The CIA was right. Um, there were about um, 10 of these in the end by the late 19, 1960, and two par- two deployed only, um, two, two deployed sites. And what had happened was the Soviets had decided that SS-6 wasn't the way to go. They developed a new missile, uh, the SS-7 in NATO parlance, and that was the one that they were going to concentrate on deploying. Bob Erickson's flight, that square deal, 9th of April, when that came across Turitam, that noticed... That a new pad out to the east, um, and wasn't close enough to get good intelligence on it. That was where the new missile was being tested. Um, but that was um, the missile gap, eventually solved by the corona. First successful corona satellite mission in August 1960, the same month that Gary Powers went on trial in Moscow. And... Um, eventually he came back in february 62 um and was debriefed and uh, a board of inquiry was mounted because there were some significant concerns about whether he had in fact been shot down from altitude or not there was the national security agency had um been listening in not to the aeroplane and the and the communications of the Soviet air defenses around Sverdlovsk, that was too far in, but through the HF reporting net of the Soviet air defense system, um, which was available on HF. So they they listened to that. But of course, what they listened to was all the Soviet confusion and the Soviet reporting of the tracking of the MiG. Um, so they interpreted that as the U-2 having descended, and that was the basis for the stories that. Uh, powers had screwed up and had descended before he was shot down and of course it was convenient for the Air Force and people in the to believe that because then you wouldn't have to change all your bomber tactics. the SA2 still wasn't working properly um, And when he came back, that controversy raged again because the uh, deputy director of the NSA stuck to his guns through the board of inquiry, but eventually um, the Board of Inquiry concluded that, um, the SIGINT evidence was not, uh, reliable. Um, Powers went to work for Lockheed. He flew as an engineering test pilot on U-2s and he was killed. Or he was let go about 10 years later and went to work for a TV company taking, um, traffic, uh, I- imagery of, um, traffic, uh, congestion in the Los Angeles on the freeways in Los Angeles and he was killed uh when his uh helicopter um crashed in August of seventy seven. Um I think I'd better leave it there. We're not gonna have time to deal with um the uh aftermath any more of the of the U two, but just suffice it to say that the U two is still very much with us uh and um is uh not likely to be retired until the middle of the next decade.
0: Thank you very much, Chris, for a fascinating account of the way the U2 was used, which I'm, I'm sure most of us learned a lot from, and then the actual shootdown incident. Now, you're happy to take questions? Of course, yes. That was a fascinating talk. You said you didn't have time to tell us what the U-2 is doing now. Can my question enable you to use some of that time?
1: to to Tell us what it's doing now, please. Sure. Um, Right now, today, there will be about uh, five of them deployed uh, in the UAE uh, from where they fly over Afghanistan on a daily basis. Uh, There's three of them deployed in South Korea and they fly a daily mission Monitoring, uh, along the borders with, um, North Korea. Um, they're available for, um, deployments as and when to elsewhere. Uh, they covered, they covered natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina. Um, and, um, they are there because not only are they of course, everything's been upgraded. Um, the, the, those original airplanes are long gone. The U-2 was put back into production in 1968 and improved and enlarged airplane, and um, again put back into production for an unprecedented third time in the late 70s. And uh, so most of the fleet, and there's 30 of them, are less than 20 years old, and um, a lot of ours remaining. And not only has the airframe been updated, but of course all the sensors have been updated and their real time, uh, data links, satellite link or, or, um, tethered air to ground link. And, um, the key, key, key thing with the U2, which as of today, no other high altitude air breathing aeroplane or unmanned air vehicle can do is that they, they take the imaging sensor which is either an electro-optic camera or a very high resolution radar they take the imaging sensor up at the same time as the sigint sensor so that they can um they can use both they can fuse the data from both which provides a more meaningful and accurate um, intelligence picture
2: chris hi um it's quite instructive you know you look at all the time and effort and sacrifice that went into collecting this information and now you can sit here with Google Earth on your phone in this room and look at Chelyabinsk or wherever. My, my question is, why isn't Ericsson's name the one that we all remember instead of Powers? Why, why didn't they get Ericsson on that mission? What changed between his flight and the Powers flight for them to be able to, to get to the aircraft?
1: Well, um, Ericsson flew over fewer SA-2 sites. Um, there was a procedural screw-up with the air interceptors. They, want, they sent SU-9s after him from Novosibirsk, which was a factory, because they had a couple of operational pilots there doing training. Um, but for them, with the, as you know, the limited range of early Soviet interceptors, they had to land in, at the airfield at um, Dolon, um, the bomber airfield at Dolon, and refuel to meet powers, and um, well, that was a that was a different branch of the Soviet military. That wasn't the PVO. That was the bomber troops, and the, <laughs> they actually were refused permission until it was too late. Um, the um, he didn't go up to Sverdlovsk uh, or Chelyarbinsk where there were SA two sites. He came down to Turotam. The um, SA two site there was inactive, was at, uh, active but inactive that day. They launched more uh, interceptors at, at him at the border as he went out from uh, Marie, and they chased him out and into Iran, hoping that he'd descend. But he didn't descend until he got close to the bear base in Iran, so and they had to recall. They were recalled. Um, so, geographic circumstance and screw up is the uh, is the answer.
3: Uh, Chris, um, you mentioned the, the two transfer flights from Turkey to Pakistan prior to the Grand Slam day. Am I correct in saying that those two, uh, those two movements were of a different aeroplane to the one powers actually used? The one powers flew had already had a crash landing in Japan some time before, had to be rebuilt, and there possibly was problems with its fuel transfer system.
1: Yes, that's, that, that's correct, and thank, thanks for reminding me. Um, because of this decision to do the movements of the airplanes, um, the article, the airplane selected for the flight, uh, ran out of hours and, and needed an inspection, because it was five hours uh, from uh, Turkey to Pakistan, and it shuttled twice, so that's 20 hours, brought it up to its inspection time. So, for the last transit on the night before the 1st of May, um, they had to substitute Article 360. Now, 360 had indeed um, uh, crash-landed or, or run out of fuel and, and, and force-landed the year before, but it had gone back to the factory for a complete rework and the engine upgrade. Uh, so it came out of the factory in pretty good shape. Now, it really depends who you talk to about 360. Uh, John MacArthur, the British pilot, uh, and Mike Bradley, who, who was his backup, both say to me that they thought 360 was a dog. Uh, it didn't fly right. Um, Powers said the same thing in his autobiography, but I've read his debriefing when he came back. His autobiography wasn't written until 1970. When he, in his debriefing in 1962, he didn't play that up. He didn't mention it. So... It. Um, I don't think it was a factor, except for one one thing, which actually played into this whole bit about did he screw up, and that is the autopilot went wrong. But that happened on other airplanes. But the autopilot began to play up uh, about a quarter of an hour, half an hour before he was shot down. He, he that was an abort criteria. He could have aborted, but he was so far, in he thought, "Shit, I can fly this thing," and and you could, as long as you were paying careful attention. I think. You two pilot in the audience. Um but um so so he, he hand flew it from there on in. Um but um and, and there was some talk, oh he how could you hand fly that airplane? But um in the end I discount that.
3: Thank you. Uh oh, ahead, I, I have a host of questions. One When did Eisenhower have his stroke and did that upset his judgment. And then the other questions concern the resolution of the photography. Was it three-dimensional photography? Was it color? And then, when the uh, Blackbird replaced U2, was the resolution of the photography from that worse than the U2? Anyway, there we go. The stroke.
1: The stroke. Um... Gosh, I'm a history major. I should know this. Um, but I don't. Um, but I...
3: I think I'm saying that. I'm I, he did to yes, yes,
1: yes. Anyone? Can anyone help me out? Uh, Eisenhower? Because Foster, Dull, Dull, uh, Foster <laughs> Dulles had a stroke, and uh, he was the Secretary of State. He was Alan Dulles' brother, the head of the CIA. Um, i have to draw a blank on that. But okay. um, I... Over the years, I've um, come to be a great fan of Eisenhower. He didn't get a good press at the time. He was out playing golf. He wasn't on the ball. He wasn't on the watch. And but, criticized um,
3: by Montgomery.
1: Yes. Uh, I, I have a lot of time for him. I think he was a quietly great president for so many reasons. Film. Um, the uh, resolution of the film was pretty good, especially in the vertical and the two, left and right. It was black and white. There was stereo, there was overlap, uh, but it wasn't really a stereo system, unlike a a pan camera can be. Um, but, um, the resolution, uh, was as good as six inches. It could resolve this book, um, under the right conditions. And that was the problem with Corona, the satellite, of course, that had much less good resolution it it of course it covered a wider area and um you could um you could get a lot out of it not enough for the hawks not enough for the air force in 1961 as those first corro- successful corona satellite missions came in the hawks stuck to their ground as someone in the cia said to the air force every fly speck on the film was a missile Color, no, it wasn't color. Um, the Blackbird, uh, complicated story because the CIA version of the Blackbird had different cameras from the Air Force one. Um, but nothing really beat that B camera on a good day.
3: Which had a very large focal length, presumably.
1: Well, it didn't actually. It had a 36 inch focal length. It wasn't that, um, I mean, you know, the, the camera in the U2 today, uh, the electro-optical camera has a 144-inch focal length. It's a it's a telescope. But the B camera couldn't be a telescope because they didn't know precisely where to look. They had to have something that would give them an area search but with good enough resolution. Um, so 36 inches, uh, but very, very well-designed quality control uh, maintained in the field by the manufacturer. Good evening. I've seen the um, bits of the U-2 in Havana, and
3: um, I've seen, obviously seen photos of the ones the Chinese have claimed to shoot down. Do you know if this was all SA2 action that brought them down?
1: Yes. Um, the uh, Cuba crisis, one U-2 shot down over Cuba, 1962, uh, and five shot down over China in an operation that was flown, a joint venture... Not, uh, between the U.S. and the nationalists on Taiwan. So those five pilots were nationalist pilots. Incidentally, two of those five survived. Frank Powers was the first one to survive a shoot down, but those other two, two Chinese pilots proved that it was possible too. Um, and, um, those were shot down by SA-2s, uh, the, or, or the, lo- They were shot down from 62 to 67, and the last one was shot down by the Chinese copy of the SA-2, the red flag. But that's reminded me of an interesting intelligence point about the SA-2. I told you that uh, 60,000 feet was the assessed altitude. Well, when Gary Powers took off, as far as US intelligence was concerned, the SA-2 had not yet claimed a victim. And so for years and years throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, all the books told you that Gary Power's airplane was the first to be shot down by an SA-2, by any surface-to-air missile. Not true. In October of 1959, a predecessor program to that nationalist Chinese U-2 program was already flying over mainland China from Taiwan. They were using the RB-57D, which was a long-wing version of the Canberra, effectively. And in October of 59, one of those was shot down over Beijing. Now, of course, that was known. The pilot didn't come back, and uh, the Chinese communists proudly announced they'd shot one of the intruding, renegade Chiang Kai-shek gang airplanes down. But they didn't say how. And, of course, there's no... There's no... um communication from the airplane, there's, not, there's nothing on the airplane um, there's no intelligence of any kind to tell you what's going on so they had to assume that it was shot down by fighters, so that was the situation
3: I know this isn't anything to do with U two, but what do you make of the so
1: called Aurora project and the um, contrails with donuts and a rope coming out of the back Oh god, I'd, I'd, ra- I'd rather not answer that actually afterwards, afterwards uh, Just one quickie um, you mentioned the Original USAF
0: pilots were ex-USAF people. Now, you mentioned there were two RAF pilots. Now, who were they flying for? The Americans or the CIA or were they serving RAF officers?
1: They were, they were serving RAF officers. They, um, they worked for the MEU, the Meteorological Evaluation Unit. <laughs>
3: Gordon Bruce, with possibly an unfair question, so since it's not exactly within the scope of the lecture. Thank you for the clarity with which you describe the participation of the Royal Air Force pilots, the Jacksons, in these deep penetrations of the Soviet Union. However, there are those who say that the Royal Air Force had already made deep penetrations of the Soviet Union, possibly around about 1953-54, before the U2 project was launched, when modified Canberras are said to have penetrated as far as Kapustin Ya, the intermediate range ballistic missile site. That is what is said, sir. Have you any confirmation or denial on that?
1: I don't believe it. Um, it, it's, it's, of course, it's been written in books, and of course, it's been a subject which I have, um, Looked at in some depth and debated with at least one author who wrote that. Um, I, I think it's most unlikely. Can't, we can't find the files. I actually wrote a paper on this, on the search for the, the, the Kapustin Yar flight, which appeared in a historical journal a few years back with all the reasons. So I won't elaborate on them. But suffice it to say that if I'm wrong and that flight or flights took place, they didn't produce anything useful, sadly, because when uh, a U-2 on Operation Soft Touch in 1957 flew over Kapustin Yar, it was the first use, imagery, the first imagery of Kapustin Yar that had been returned since the Second World War. That we do know from the photo interpretation reports.
2: There is a wonderful Michael Turner painting of uh, 1972 um, lightning coming up behind a U-2. So for lightning aficionados, I don't know whether we can get it in the Royal Sock Journal. But the question that puzzles me is that seeing that the SR-71 was um, stopped being used many years ago, the fact that the U-2 is still being used surprised me. And is it because they think that the the threat to it is is much less from the countries that it's now overflying.
1: Well, I mean, obviously, it, it's, um, the U-2 is not survivable in a high-threat air defence environment. The SR-71 was a really expensive aeroplane, and its support structure with all the tankers involved and everything else was really expensive. You need a whole squadron of tankers for an SR-71 mission. Um, it was retired also because it wasn't real-time. You see, the U-2 was the first reconnaissance aircraft to be fitted with a real-time data link. 1972, a very long time ago. Um, so the U-2 was real-time, the SR-71 wasn't. Furthermore, the SR-71 was not a good... SIGIN aeroplane. It went literally too fast. Um <laughs> it whizzed by conversations you might want to hear, or signals you might want to pick up. Um the U-2 can orbit. Um and um so and also of course the imaging, the type of imaging that the SR seventy one was designed for, which was denied territory area coverage, that Went to satellites, the satellites got better, and they did get better progressively and into real time relay satellite 1976 onwards. So um, that was the end of the SR, and the U2 continues for a, a number of reasons to do with it's a whole combination of reasons, some of which I've, most of which I've mentioned already.
3: Thank you. Um, Bob Lightfoot ex uh, MOD Intelligence. You mentioned British and uh, nationalist Chinese involvement in the program, were there any other countries?
1: Uh, no, not not, a, not flying it um, and not really involved in any meaningful way and certainly not until the late 70s in analysing its intelligence first hand. No. Oh, um, I might add that before the U.S. Air Force pilots were selected in 1956, sorry, 55, 56, the CIA did consider, uh, employing mercenary pilots. Uh, they had, they, they looked at some Greek pilots. They actually trained them. They got as far as the, uh, the ranch, the test site. Um, uh, but, uh, they couldn't cut the mustard, so they were uh, removed from the program. Quickly
3: on this one, did the, when the Air Force pilots flew it, did it have in any way a British moniker on it or was it still highly obviously US in every way?
1: Oh, uh, well, it didn't have any markings on it. I mean, this is the... Uh, <laughs> I, wasn't,
3: I wasn't expecting national markings, oh. but any, did, it, did they have any serial numbers or
1: anything? Oh, uh, well, no, they had articles... The... the, the, the um, you dare not speak this plane's name. Uh, it was called the Article, and all the Articles had numbers. The plane that we've been discussing for the Powers mission was Article 360. Um, that's how they were known. Um, but when they flew, this is an exact uh, replica of the May Day configuration, by the way. Um, and um, uh, no markings, no. Um you haven't had any uh, information from the russians about this or even dafter uh, conversations with any of the russians oh yeah involved you have oh absolutely loads i mean oh. one couldn't tell this story uh without learning the russian side of it which is why i was encouraged to to write this book uh in in the year 2000 because uh the end of the cold war 1990 um led a number of the Soviet actors in the May Day drama to uh, write uh, memoirs and uh, the Soviet uh, military newspaper Red Star, Krishna Zesta, um published a whole series of articles. That was my starting point, I got those translated and um, then I took advice from a couple of former uh, PVO um, officers and um, later on I met uh, one of the uh, PVO officers that were on the uh, investigation committee uh, from their side in 1960 uh, in, in the Soviet investigation as to what had actually gone on. Um, so there is actually plenty of Soviet source material on this. Uh, the only trouble is some of it is conflicting, and I mentioned Minsukov, the Sukhoi 9 pilot, in uh, in my talk.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, one of the fascinating things since the end of the Cold War is just how much information now is available. Uh, Rod, I
2: think you want a second go. Just a quick again from Rod. Um, the, just thinking about the coffin corner problem, I just wondered if the latest U2s have had any modifications like slightly thinner wings or some other mod so that they've got a bit more leeway as an ex-aerodynamicist <coughs> system. You would have expected something like that.
1: Yes, the, um, the, the enlarged U2R that was produced in 1968 was a scale-up, but most important, the, the fuselage was longer. So the moment arms changed and... Um, the weight distribution of the airplane was very carefully re-engineered by Kelly Johnson. They kept the same uh, camber, the same NACA cross-section for the wing, but scaled that up too. That meant they didn't, all the fuel could be internal, they didn't need the slipper tanks anymore. Um, so a lot of the, the U-2R, the 1968 enlarged airplane was much improved aerodynamically and also from the pilot's point of view uh, the cockpit was bigger, and he was able to wear a full-pressure suit, which, uh, just like the spacesuits that the astronauts uh, wear, and that was a lot more comfortable than the um, original partial pressure suits.
0: And did the larger cockpit make it possible to use an ejector seat on the later
1: aircraft? Well, there was an ejector seat, a fairly rudimentary one, mm. on the... Yeah original U-2. Not in 1956. Not when it was first designed by Kelly. But hell, when Kelly designed it, there wasn't an undercarriage. I mean, it took off, you know, as he designed it, it took off um, from a skid and landed, um, took, took off from a trolley and landed on a skid. But uh, a, a rudimentary ejector seat was added in 1957. Um, one of the issues which added weight to the plane that I described earlier Um and, um, that was in place for the power flight, but he couldn't use it because, um, as the nose went forward and the airplane, the wings came off and it entered that spin like that, he was pushed forward, uh, against the front of the cockpit. And he calculated that if he operated the seat, the canopy rail would chop his legs off at the, uh, at around about there. So, um, Uh, He couldn't use it, and uh, so um, that's when he decided to bail out.
0: One last question, very bad.
3: Thank you, Bob Lightfoot again. Um, I think I recall in your book that you referred to this aircraft operating from a carrier. Now that sounds quite remarkable. Can you enlarge?
1: Yes, well that that was one of the measures taken in the early 1960s to keep the airplane viable, because after May Day, this was the black lady of espionage. That's that's what it was called in, in the press. Norway, Pakistan, Turkey, were they ever gonna let U2s fly out of their countries again? No way. Um, so if it was gonna be viable, um, there'd have to be another means of launching it. And what better than a very large piece of floating U.S.-owned real estate. And so, therefore, the um, airplane was uh, re-modified. didn't take much uh, to operate off a carrier. I mean, this airplane with its lift coefficient and its thrust-to-weight ratio, I mean, you almost, if you turned a carrier into wind, you almost had to hold it down; otherwise, it would take off uh, just, you know, without applying any power. I mean, that's a slight exaggeration, but uh, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, landing it was a big deal, um, and they did land it on a carrier.
0: Before I ask the Airpower Group to propose a vote of thanks, Peter Davison, Davison wants to just a
2: quick comment to show the humanitarian side and perhaps something very, very recent. I read recently that a number of missions were flown over the Haiti earthquake zone um, by U2s in order to map the area effectively to report back the damage, which I imagine would be data linked to the carrier or the control centre that was set up in Haiti only a few weeks ago. Uh, can you confirm that?
1: Yes, I believe so. I haven't uh, caught up with them yet on what, um, what they've been doing. Um, uh, but yes, they were there. Um, as they were in Hurricane Katrina and uh, have been in a number. And I think you, this is my moment to mention what uh, Kit said to me before we started, don't forget civilian use. Well, the CIA unit, when they disbanded, uh, they gave three of those early airplanes to NASA. And uh, NASA has had its own U-2 operation since 1971.
0: Yeah, I think they're doing a lot of very high altitude meteorology with it. Indeed. Real meteorology. Real
1: with it. Real, weather. <laughs> real meteorology. Yes. Right,
0: thank you very much. Um, could I ask Richard Gearing from the EPA group to um, propose a vote of things? Chris, um, I think this evening you
2: presented us a, a huge wealth of information I think we could probably bring you back an entire series of lectures. Um, there's a lot there that I certainly didn't know about particularly the British involvement and, and I think uh, you, know, you your knowledge of your subject is obviously unparalleled. Um, so, I'd very much like to thank you on behalf of both the historical group and the air power group uh, for taking the time this evening to come and join us. And, uh, we never let our speakers go away in hands. so, do have a small gift for you. Oh, thanks. And, uh, I'd ask all of them to show you their appreciation as well.